This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking, the show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, editor-at-large and cartoonist for Mississippi Today. Well, hailing from Ackerman in Choctaw County, Raymond Edmund Mabus Jr.'s father would close his hardware store once a year, and the family would travel abroad to collect art, textiles, and historic memorabilia. Now, fast forward to 2022, Ray Mabus has continued that tradition and in turn has amassed a wide ranging of artifact collection that is currently being curated by fellow Mississippian and designer of the B.B. King Museum, Stephen Perkins, at his West Virginia home. From child collector to auditor to governor of Mississippi, in addition to serving as ambassador of Saudi Arabia and secretary of the Navy on behalf of the U.S., Mabus is here today to discuss his curation and his collection and the journey that has led him to become one of the most notable individuals from the Magnolia State. Of course, Secretary Ray Mabus is here. So welcome to Now You're Talking. Governor, you know, you've had so many titles, I'm not quite sure what to call you. Is Ray okay? <laughs> Ray, Ray is my preferred title. Thank you. Very good. You're probably like me. You've been called a lot of things, some of them not good, some of them great. But today, uh, Ray is fantastic, and I'm just thrilled to get to talk to you today. I, in fact, it's been a long time. And, you know, I was just thinking over the 25 years I've been a cartoonist here, because you left right before I got here as governor, I never really had the honor and pleasure of getting to just draw you over and over and over, and I, I know you hate that. <laughs> well, actually, as I've been going through stuff, I've come across quite a few of your cartoons that you were nice enough to send to me for the time I was governor. And, you know, it, um, I have to say, and it pains me to say it, but you were very good. You were incredibly fair. I'll stop it. I promise. I, I won't do that anymore. I, I, I have built on that. But no, really, it's like I said, you've had an amazing career and, and I'm so glad you're on today to talk a little bit about the collection. And I was trying to think about the best way to structure this. And I think probably the best way is basically you tell us about your life, and we'll start from the early, and you talk about some things that you've collected all along the way, and that way we can kind of go through your life and talk about the collection at the same time. And before we get going on that, I have to tell you a quick story. I have a friend of mine who has a challenge coin that he got from you, and for anybody who's in the military knows that whoever has the highest-ranking challenge coin never has to buy the beer at the bar, Right. And so my friend is very proud of the fact that he has a Secretary of the Navy challenge coin because he never has to buy beer from anybody. I, I think there's probably only a few that would be above that. So anyway, I just want to let you know how much joy you have brought to my friend just by giving him that one. The highest I've got the Brigadier General. So, you know, I, I end up having to pay every time I'm out with him. So uh, I just thought that was great, though. Well, I'm so glad that he's got it and that he kept it. And there's only one that beats it. And that's a president. That's right. So I'll have to tell him that because knowing him, he'll try to go get one so he can make sure that he always never, because he's that cheap, uh, to say the least, on that. But what an amazing life and an amazing career that you've had. So just to throw that out there. Well, thank you. I've been very fortunate in my life. 
Let's talk a little bit about the early years. I mean, literally, you're from Ackerman. For those that are on the way up to Starkville, you see the signs to Ackerman in case you never get there. It's a neat town. It really is. And I know growing up there must have been a lot of fun. Sounds like you had a pretty incredible family life and fantastic parents who really valued your education. Marshall, I had one of the best childhoods you can imagine, and I just picked my parents very carefully. And they, um, and I'll go into them a little bit. My dad was born in 1901. He was almost 50 when I was born. Uh, my mom was born in Montgomery County. My dad was born into a house, and my mom, to houses that had no running water, no electricity. But my dad and his brother, my uncle, opened a hardware store in Ackerman that they kept as partners, Mavis Brothers Hardware, for almost 40 years. And as you said, sort of at the top of the hour, my dad and his brother had this insatiable curiosity about the world. And so he took me everywhere. And my dad had one brother, one sister, all born around the end of the 19th century, 1894, 1896, and 1901. And at a time when nationwide, only 6% of America graduated from high school, all three of them got at least two degrees. My aunt spoke and taught four languages in schools around the country. My uncle got a Taylor Medal at Ole Miss, the highest academic award in math, and then he went to West Point and was commissioned into the Army. And my mother, her two sisters, they both got at least two degrees. And so, as I said, I just picked my parents very carefully. first trip I made was when I was six years old, my dad moved my mom and me to Mexico City, and we stayed there for almost a year. So I still have some stuff that my parents got when I was a baby. We went back when I was four, stayed for another three months. My dad was trying to learn Spanish and actually became pretty proficient in it. And then when I was seven, about to enter the third grade, my father and mother took me to Europe, bought a car there, bought a Renault in Paris, and spent three months driving around Europe. And you know, my father taking pictures. They bought some stuff, some collections. But when it really started for me was in 1963. I was 14 years old, and my dad had just built a new house in Ackerman. And he had hardwood floors. And he didn't like wall-to-wall carpet, which was the thing at the time. So he read the Encyclopedia Britannica, Who Made the Best Rugs? And he took me to Tehran because it said that Iran made the best rugs. And it was a pretty amazing trip. It was Lisbon, Rome, Cairo, Tehran, Beirut, Istanbul, Athens, Belgrade, Vienna, Paris, London, home. That was not an ordinary summer for a kid from Ackerman, Mississippi. And when we got to Tehran, my dad and I, the first night we were there, there was this huge demonstration down Ferdosi Avenue, which was the main street in Tehran. Tens of thousands of people, all men, just marching, chanting real low. And the next day, fighting broke out. And it was the first uprising against the Shah, led by this wow. unknown cleric from Qum named Humaini. And so we were staying in the Palace Hotel in Tehran. And every night, you could go up on the roof. It was only about eight stories. And you would see firefights going on. You'd see tracers. And, you know, I was a 14-year-old kid. I loved that. I thought this was the most exciting thing I'd ever done. My mother back home did not think it was that exciting. But 
every morning my dad would go down and ask the hotel, said, where's the fighting? And how can I get to the rug stores? And so we would, you know, go on these long, circuitous routes, but he went every day. The most interesting thing was we were walking down an alley on the way to the rug stores, and there was a guy sitting right in the middle holding an automatic weapon. And we were too far down the alley to turn around by the time we saw him. And we passed him, and the walking away from him, not knowing which side he was on, not knowing what he thought of foreigners. One of the longest three or four minutes of my life, I think. But my dad bought a bunch of rugs, most of which I have today. And it just sort of ignited my love of buying things that were unique and buying them where they were made. And so I've had the most fortunate life. And when I was in uh, Saudi Arabia, right in the middle of the Middle East, you know, the finest antique rugs, which was the only kind you can bring back into the U.S. because of the sanctions against Iran, the finest ones were in Damascus then. And Damascus was this wonderful city in the Middle East, and so I went and bought a bunch of rugs. But I kept traveling, sometimes with my dad. He and I went across the Trans-Siberian Railroad in 1968. And then, you know, I was in the Navy, mainly in the North Atlantic and Mediterranean, I went with my dad to Central America after I started law school. I went with him to Mexico after I came back to work with Governor Winter uh, to Mississippi. But, you know, in between, in 1978, I went to China with a congressional trip, and it was before relations were normalized. And so I've got all this stuff from 44 years ago, but from China at a time before it opened up, and Chinese antiques and Chinese rugs that I was able to, fortunate enough to buy there. Your storage warehouse is way more interesting than my storage warehouse. We'll just put it that <laughs> way. And then, in, you know, when I became governor, I started going to the Far East on trade missions. I had hired a person who's still a friend to represent Mississippi in the Far East, in Japan, China, Korea. And it was actually not much while I was governor, but after I was governor, I worked for a Mississippi company, Skytel, negotiating a contract in China for Skytel. And, you know, this person that I had hired started taking me to antique stores in China, antique furniture stores mainly. And at the time, China had these amazing wood furniture antiques, but they thought they were old-fashioned. And so people would trade them to these antique dealers basically for new furniture. And the antique dealers stored them in big warehouses and you sort of had to know where to go. And she would take me there. And so I have my house furnished with basically two things, Chinese antiques and Fletcher Cox wood furniture. Uh, you know, Fletcher made my desk, my bed, bookcases, the vanity in the bathroom. I mean, I think I've got the largest Cox collection on earth. And, you know, when I became Secretary of the Navy, by the time I left, I was the most traveled senior executive in U.S. government history. I went 1,342,544 miles, visited 152 different countries and territories. Wow. And that counted Afghanistan as one, and I went there 12 times. Counted Japan as one, I went there 10 times. Went to Australia seven times. And one of the rituals that you go through 
when you have meetings with, you know, the prime minister or the minister of defense, you exchange gifts at the end. And I gave great gifts. I gave Marine sabers and Navy swords. I gave flight jackets. I gave Marine K-bar knives. And I got, I'll put it this way, a variety of gifts in return. <laughs> um, some of them were very unique. Some of them were uh, not so unique. But, you know, it got me into so many different cultures. And the rules are so stringent on gifts you can accept. Is there any limit to what you could keep? Oh, yeah. At the time I was there, overseas, you could keep, or if the gift was from somebody overseas, you could keep anything worth $350 or less. If it was more than that, you could buy it or you could accept it on behalf of the Navy, and it went to the National Archives. So a lot of the stuff I got was unique. It wasn't that expensive. You know, everything would get appraised. I had a protocol officer. Everything would get appraised, photographed, run by the lawyers. And I didn't keep a whole lot of those gifts. But I had an initiative called the Gulf of Guinea Initiative, which is Atlantic along the west coast of Africa. There are 19 countries that border the Gulf of Guinea. And none of them is big enough or has a big enough military, particularly a Navy, to combat what was going on there. And everything was going in the wrong direction. Piracy was going up. Transnational crime was going up. Terror was moving east to west. Boko Haram was rising. Illegal fishing, smuggling of arms, of people, of drugs. And so I spent a lot of time in West Africa just you know, getting the 19 countries to work together. And we gave every country a land-based radar system that they could keep a track of ships. We did the satellite feeds, and we set up a fusion center in Senegal so that, you know, if a pirate hijacked a ship, they couldn't just go across an invisible line in the sea, and Togo could no longer chase them because they were in Cameroon waters. And we did exercises with them. We did one called Turn on the Lights, which was... You know, everybody got their radars going. We did the satellite feed, and, you know, they caught some people. They caught some pirates, and it got them to working together much closer. But because I spent so much time there, I mean, West African art is just, to me, phenomenal, mainly the wood carvings, the masks, things like that. And I bought some, way too many. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, you know, it's going to be probably my children. To sort it out <laughs> well <laughs> what happens to those masks but uh you know I, i've got masks from all over the world but i've got a lot of masks and statues and things like that from west africa we were talking a little bit about you know how you got this love of travel from your dad and i was going to ask you about your dad he was obviously he was born in 1901, so he didn't serve in World War One. He was too young for that, and he didn't probably serve in World War Two. I mean, obviously, education was a big part of your family. Where did he get that love of education? That's question number one. Number two, when you say a Chinese antique, that's not like something that's from 1900. A Chinese antique, I would imagine, is really old. And the fact that you have a huge collection of Fletcher Cox work, I'm like so jealous. And I guess the fourth thing is I envision when you travel, you bring along a C-17 just to bring home what you buy. <laughs> well, the last one, no. Uh, okay. In my dreams. But, uh, yeah. you know, the, the Navy did give me a nice ride. Uh, yeah. And so, um, <laughs> so it had, you, you, uh, you got more than overhead luggage compartment, right? So you had a little extra space. Yeah. 
You did. Um, okay. But now the last little piece I want to talk about before I did that was I also collect Mississippi art. And Bill Dunlap and I grew up about 20 miles, 30 miles from each other. He's about five years older than I am, so we really didn't overlap that much. But I got to know him really well. Yeah, he's one of my favorite people in Mississippi. He's great. He is a world-class artist and a better person. Mm -hmm. Um, Amen. You know, just incredible and generous. And he did my gubernatorial portrait, first and maybe only portrait he's ever done. I was afraid he was going to put a you know dead fish in there or something, but uh, he didn't. But I've got probably got 20 Dunlaps in my house now. I've got a couple of Walter Andersons. I've got Terry Cherry and Loretta Smith, a lot of Mississippi artists that when I was governor, we had a rotating thing in the mansion of Mississippi art. I just got to see some amazing artists and, you know, could buy some of their stuff as it went through. But I don't know the short answer to your question about my dad. He did serve in World War II. Uh, okay. He was a much, much older lieutenant. He never went overseas. He was 41 when World War II started. 40, I guess, and turned 41 not long thereafter. And he was seen as way too old. His brother, who was a Westporter, they recalled all Westporters, and his brother was in his late 40s, and they recalled him to the Army. But he also was seen as probably too old, and neither one of them went overseas. I wish I knew where this love of education came from because – and I should have asked. You know, it was sort of normal life to me, and it didn't. I didn't realize how unusual it was until it was probably too late to, you know, to ask to ask him. But I mean, just a fierce love of education and a belief that I share that education is the one way up. That if you do that right, chances are pretty good that everything else is going to turn out okay. So that made it really easy when you were working with Governor Winter. And, of course, when <laughs> I loved when Senator Ellis Bodron called you the one of the boys of spring on that. When you were out there, of course, that stuck. Uh, when you, the, the group, I mean, that really was a pretty talented bunch of folks that were working together with Governor Winter. But, I mean, during that time when you are out there on the stump talking about education, this wasn't just you just talking talking points. This was literally a lifelong desire and something that absolutely drove you. So I, I – you know, like I said, that was before my time here, but it would have been fun to sit there and listen to that debate. Yeah, that's one of the high points of my career. And I've told people that, you know, I've had seven election nights in my life. I've been fortunate, elective and the appointed jobs that I've gotten. But I think the best political memory that I have is the day the Education Reform Act passed. Yeah. And in 1982, and the, the boys of spring, the five of us, went to George Street afterwards. And, you know, we were, I don't drink. I'm the only graduate of Ole Miss in history that doesn't drink, I think. <laughs> but I might, have, I might have made an exception that night. But one of the things we talked about was that tens of thousands of Mississippi children were going to have a brighter future because of what just happened, and they would never know who we were. And that we thought that was the way it ought to be. The Governor Winter ought to get all the credit because he was the one that took the risk. He was the one that was brave. He was the one that was willing to be out front. Helping people and staying anonymous was really one of the most satisfying things that's ever happened to me or to the other so-called boys of spring. And that was not a compliment, by the way, as you know. Oh, I know. <laughs> that's a, that was it, but it stuck. And I thought that was great. I just found a, we got ribbons made up that we would wear on our lapel that said boys of spring when we were talking to the legislature. 
and <laughs> I had mine framed. So, uh, yeah, we took it as a compliment. Will that be part of the collection? It is. Ah, that's cool. Yeah, I was going to ask if you have any political memorabilia in there, too, because that'll be actually a lot of fun. The Recently, of course, they had a big celebration of Governor and Ms. Winters both. And it was fantastic just because it was a great cross-section of Mississippians. There was every political ideal and everything else in there because I think everybody just totally respected the job that he had done for the state and the fact that he was so committed to service. It was a really wonderful day. It really was. And when I was governor and he would call me, my assistant would say, the real governor's on the line. Uh, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> well, I sort, of, I sort of thought that myself. But, um, yeah. I mean, he had that notion of service. My dad had that notion, too. I mean, I joined ROTC at Ole Miss and joined the Navy, you know, uh, spent couple of years on a big gray ship with guns. Uh, out, out. You, were on the, you were on the Little Rock, right? You were on the USS Little Rock. I was. That still exists, too. It's up in Buffalo, if I'm correct. So have you been back to your old ship? Oh, yeah, particularly as secretary. And I named the next USS Little Rock, which got commissioned, tied up alongside the old USS Little Rock in Buffalo. The ship was made in Marinette, Wisconsin, the new one. And it's the first time in the more than 240-year history of the United States Navy that's ever happened. That is really cool. That is really cool. I was just going to ask, uh, did you take a piece off the old Little Rock and put it in your collection, too, or did they let you? Because, I mean, <laughs> they probably frown on that if you start, you know, unscrewing no, the they, pieces. They actually gave me the old USS Little Rock had a teak deck. It was a World War II ship, and they gave me a pretty good piece of the teak deck, you know, a long piece of teak, because they had to take it up for maintenance, and... You know, the people who were the most amazed that I got to be Secretary of the Navy were the people on my ship. <laughs> and my boss in the Navy lives about 30 miles from me now, and he sends me two or three emails a day. When I was at Navy, that was about 10 emails explaining how to run the Navy. You know, and I still call him boss. But when you're talking about pieces of ships, when I was Secretary, we put or the USS Constitution, the oldest warship in the world, still on the active roles, still as an active duty crew. It got put in for maintenance, and they had to remove a good bit of the wood, the old wood from the 1790s when it was built. And I used some of that wood as gifts, small pieces that I would give to people. And then I bought two planks from the Navy, and Fletcher made it into a table for me. Where do you have the table? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. I'm building a house, so I'm in part of our house and I've, I've got it in the great room and it's quite a table. The other thing that sort of by happenstance because I was Secretary of the Navy, a lot of people gave me uh, and I bought a lot of ship models and that started when I was governor and you know about six months in an artisan from the Gulf Coast showed up at my office with a model of a Gulf Coast shrimp boat and I kept it in my office the whole time. I've got it in my home now and you know as i said people start giving me uh ship models and i started buying ship models and uh, again i've got way too many but uh that's one of the favorite parts of, of my collection from all around the world are those ship models and most of them are warships uh, let me, i was going to ask you on this of course i enjoy painting airplanes and ships so i mean i'm totally fascinated in battleships for instance but 
this collection of ships and this collection of Chinese art and of rugs and everything else, and you said you're building a home, so you're not going to put a giant wing on your house on this. Where are you going to house the collection? Is this something that people are going to be able to see? Well, it's going to be in my house. You talked about Stephen Perkins, you know, from Natchez. He redid the governor's mansion when I was governor, the family quarters. We've renovated a house together. I built a house in Mississippi with him. We're building a house here. And one of the things is that I'm going to put stuff out or I'm going to do something else with it. By the end of this project, I want to not have anything in storage. And Ole Miss has my papers from governor, ambassador, secretary, and I've given them a whole lot of the things that I've been given because I think it belongs in a, a more organized collection. I've just kept the stuff that, you know, is very personal to me. And so I know Ole Miss has had a couple of exhibits, small exhibits of things like books that I was given as secretary by heads of Navy or heads of state around the world. And I think they're going to do more of that. So I don't know if my house is going to be a, a museum, but it, it's going to have uh, Stephen Perkins has designed, you know, a lot of places to display stuff. He does amazing work. I mean, just does fantastic. So I'm jealous. But I agree with you. I mean, on the sense of artists and so forth, because I mean, I know in my house, somebody said, would you have any of your stuff hanging up? I'm like, no, I don't want to get my stuff up. I have all my friends stuff up, all the different artists here in Mississippi, because we have such a great community. And I recently got a half finished Dunlap. So I, I'm thrilled. I mean, it's not a fully, not a fully done Dunlap, but it's a half done Dunlap, which is it's great. So it's, it's not a done Dunlap, I guess technically. Yeah, Bill's great. So if you've got the, but that's Bill for you. You never know, and um, that's another thing I love about him too. But I tell you what, I hope I get a chance to see some of your collection. I really do, I, which means I probably have to break into your house, and that would be awkward. And so probably won't do that. But. No, I'll, I'll, I'll let you in if you'll let me know when you're uh, when you're coming. I'll I'll give you the friends and family discount on the entrance ticket. So uh, excellent. Oh, thank you. I appreciate. It. I might even get a fast pass. Right, that'd be great. <laughs> no, I, I I hope you do. I'm building this house to uh, you know I like people, and so yeah. I, Right. Okay. So you're basically, you're going to tell people where it's at. So that might be a good start on that. But anyway, I'd love to see it. It just sounds like a fascinating collection, but you've had a fascinating career. Have you ever thought about doing maybe a book of some of the things that you've gotten over the years and just doing a book that way so that people could see some of the the really cool stuff and maybe some of the history behind it? I have thought about that. I've thought about doing various sorts of books for one reason or another. have not done it, but I hope I will be able to get to it. I mean, you're an incredibly busy guy. I just thought I'd throw some more work on your plate. That's, that's the least I can do. Well, like I said, uh, at, at my age, I thought I ought to get way busier and upsize my house. <laughs> you know, so, so. Well, I, I know it's really good for a marriage, too. Yeah, it's always good for a marriage to build. You know, it just it really just reduces all kinds of stress, and, and it's very relaxing. But, you know, one of the things, too, I'm excited just to be able to talk to you, because if you look at your service and the things that you've done, it seems like so many things that we're dealing with right now, and I know you read a really good column for The Hill, for instance, talking about the way to get back at Putin is to basically reduce our, basically, addiction to fossil fuels. Now we've got China going on. Obviously, you've got naval understanding of, of 
what's going on there, what China's Navy has built up over the last few years. So it's a totally different animal now dealing with them as we used to have to deal with them with Taiwan. But there's a lot of issues. And then, of course, obviously here going on with the TANF scandal, you know, you know a little bit about scandals. You dealt with one when you were when you were auditor. And, of course, that's what ended up propelling you into the governor's mansion was Operation Pretense, which I still – I really regret that I was not a cartoonist during that time. That would have been just absolutely amazing. <laughs> you know, 56 out of 410 supervisors getting busted. That's pretty incredible out of 26 out of 82 counties. But the thing that was so great about it was that there were forms passed that helped prevent that from happening again. You know, my hot take on the TANF scandal is my hope is that at least something is done down the road to prevent this from ever happening again. Well, number one, several things need to happen. Number one, you need to make sure it can't happen again. Number two, like pretense, you need to make sure there's accountability, that the people that right. did this pay for it. And number three, you know, that was $80 million to go to the neediest Mississippians, and it got stolen to go to rich people and to go to things that had nothing to do with poverty or need or anything like that. And the acceptance rate, for TANF funds in Mississippi was less than 2%. So you've got all these people that need those funds for food, need those funds for medicine, need those funds just to stay alive and was being stolen. And that, that offends me, should offend every Mississippian, and that was part of when Operation Pretense. You know, they were supervisors were stealing money that should have been going to things like education. They were taken away from our, our children's future and from our state's future. And I'll wrap it up with a reference to something you just talked about. One of the reasons, probably the main reason, the Russian army is so sorry and their equipment is so bad is that there's so much corruption. And so all the money that was supposed to go into building this military equipment, these tanks and personnel carriers, and artillery and things like that, it went into somebody's pocket instead. And so now looking at it, I'm glad it did. And I'm glad that Russia's army is so, so crappy. But, you know, corruption, particularly uh, government corruption, just eats away at everything. And it eats away at the, the notion of government. And it makes people cynical. How much pushback did you get when you were auditor? That has to believe because there's sometimes, I mean, I could just imagine that people are like, no, 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 right? You just, we got to get along here. I mean, I I could imagine that you were, it it was probably fascinating. We're like, wait a minute, auditor is not supposed to do anything. You know, that sort of thing. Well, I got a bunch of different kinds of pushback. First, I got exactly what you said. Nearly every senior Democratic politician, they were all Democrats then called me and said, hey, you've got a really bright future, but you got to quit this. Uh, you got to get along, go along. These supervisors, they want to be your friend, and they're very powerful. And maybe you can spend a couple of terms as auditor, and then you can be attorney general, and then you know, 15, 20 years from now, maybe you can run for governor. That was one kind of pushback I got. A second kind was, you know, I got death threats all the time. Had no security. But I figured if somebody was took the time to threaten me, probably weren't going to do anything. You know, I got uh, one day a, a list of tag numbers that have been out in front of my house for the previous week, got slid under my door and said, we're watching. And I thought, damn, that must be the most boring stakeout ever. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I investigated 
Earl Dean Rhodes, then the chancellor clerk of Rankin County, who's still there in Rankin County. And the DA in Rankin County, Orby Kraft, who was a close associate of Earl Dean Rhodes, sent me, my deputy, and my chief investigator letters saying that we were targets of a grand jury for prosecutorial abuse. And I got I got called into the grand jury. And, and it was really an interesting thing because Orby Kraft, the DA, first kept me waiting from 7.30 in the morning to 5 in the afternoon just to show who was boss. And he called me in, and he made a fundamental error. He asked me an open-ended question. He said, tell me why you're going after Earl Dean Rhodes or why you're investigating Earl Dean Rhodes. And I gave him about a 30-minute answer, you know, just detailing the stuff that we were finding. And he tried to interrupt me two or three times. I said, you asked me. I'm giving you the answer. And so at the end... He was sort of shell-shocked, and he asked the grand jury, he said, does anybody have any questions for the auditor? And the person's hand went up, and he, he was so relieved, and he said, yes, ma'am, what's your question? She said, I want to know why we got the auditor here investigating him. Why aren't we investigating Earl Dean Rhodes? And I got dismissed, and that's the last we, we ever heard of that. But, um, you know, people would accuse me of the fourth thing that happened is, some of the folks in Rankin County started putting out a newsletter about me. This was before the internet, before social media, and you know, just saying the nastiest things that they could about me. None of which had any basis in fact, but you know, it didn't seem to bother them. But you know, when I'm going back to my dad, he thought going into politics was maybe the worst thing a human being could do. But when he decided that he he wasn't going to dissuade me. He gave me three pieces of advice. He said, number one, I'm not going to give you any money. I don't believe in money in politics. And he didn't until my mother shamed him into it late in the campaign in, in, for auditor. But then he said, uh, don't stay in a secondary role. Don't spend 30 years at a secondary level. Said, you know, run for governor, run for the Senate, get someplace you can really make an impact. And he said, and third, be honest. I said, uh, not just don't lie, cheat, or steal. Of course, don't do those things. But he said, be honest with yourself and with your constituents. Don't do something, you know, that you know is not right or convince yourself that you're doing something for the right reasons when you know it's not true. And, um, you know, I lost my dad a year before I was elected governor. But I think my biggest fear in my life to this day is disappointing my dad. That was a perfect way to end the show. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on with us today. I love talking to you. Could talk to you for another five hours. We've got a lot of different things we could talk about, but uh, I, I can't wait to see the collection. That'll be great. And I just have enjoyed spending this hour with you. Me too, Marshall. Thanks for having me, man. All right, take care. We want to thank you for listening and thank our great guest, former Secretary of the Navy and former Governor Ray Mavis for joining us today. And if you'd like to hear the show again or any past episodes, you can listen to our podcast on our favorite podcast app or on our MPB public media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio. It's produced by Jermaine Flood. So join us next week at 10 a.m. for another great conversation here on MPB Think Radio. Y'all have a great week. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, 
please contribute today at mpbonline.org.